Do you like data centers? Cause I love data centers! I love data centers. Data centers. Data centers. Welcome, and thank you for listening. This is your host, Sean Patrick Terrio, founder, CEO, and catalyst of Open Spectrum. What you can expect to find here on this podcast are fresh new conversations with some of the most successful, experienced, and fascinating players that I have met while working in the data center marketplace over the past decade. For those who already know me, this probably goes without saying, but I can assure you new listeners that there will be no marketing fluffery or sales BS here. In fact, this is specifically a no marketing fluffery and sales BS zone, at least for the next hour or so. My objective is pure. It's to simply share some raw, honest advice and entertaining stories that will hopefully teach you something new, maybe something thought-provoking and maybe even enjoyable about the industry that drives the brave new digital world that we live in today. Mr. Rob DeVita, how are you, my friend? Thank you so much for joining me here on the I Love Data Centers podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Looking forward to, to a good session with you. So the, uh, the moment we met, I believe, was back in Austin, Texas for one of the open uh, Delta Force IT data center trainings that I was doing, I think it was probably like four or five years ago at this point, um, you were, you, I had heard about you cause you, you're infamous, uh, in the data center industry. And you also happen to be, uh, rolling around. I think you did something to your ankle. And so you were rolling around with, you know, a wheel, one leg up and a wheel underneath your leg. Uh, and it was quite, quite a first impression, but, uh, since then it's been a pleasure getting to know you and working with you over the years. Yeah, that was the the infamous knee scooter from uh, my back in my basketball days when I had a list frank injury and uh, broke and dislocated like four bones in my foot. So those were a good uh, a good four months of my life on a knee scooter. Yeah, and back then you were working at working for Cologics. I think you were the GM down in uh, in the Infomart facility there, right? Yeah. So uh, that time I was uh, yeah I ran Dallas for those folks. Um, ran. Florida and the acquisition in Jacksonville, and then also ran their uh, their national uh, service provider practice. All right, so we'll we'll get into that timeline, but I I wanted to interview you for a variety of reasons. We can we can touch on what's going on in the Dallas marketplace, which has been your home for the last fifteen sixteen years. Uh, we can talk on your track record growing into the data center space and IT space, working out of New York. We can touch on uh, the 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 times that we had in Vegas a couple weeks ago, of which I think I only recovered from a couple days ago, um, <laughs> and we can talk about OpenIX. But uh, you know, Rob is a a industry veteran. Truly, honestly, can say he is an industry veteran. And so I love to uh, start off just at, by asking, how the heck did you get started in the industry? And even prior to that, where, where did you come from? Where did you grow up? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so I grew up in Long Island. So I'm a New York native. Um, you know, went to uh, Chaminade High School out in Long Island, and then went to CW Post. Um, and then really just sort of joined the family business. Um, my dad recently retired about two years ago from AT and T. He did 49 years there. My mom's worked at AT and T. My uncles, all my uncles have worked at AT and T. My wife worked at AT and T. 
Um, so, you know, it was sort of just the rite of passage to, to start my career there. I mean, the really the only person who gets screwed in this whole thing is my sister, who's in the, uh, you know, the restaurant service industry and has nothing to talk to us about um, when we have dinners and, you know, family get togethers. Um, so, yeah, got recruited uh, from AT&T out of, out of college um, and, you know, really was able to sort of leapfrog a couple of steps there just due to, you know, my family, um, you know, being employees there. So started right off in global services with them, which is, you know, their, their top accounts. Um, and, you know, was they fortunate enough to be in the media and entertainment vertical there. So, um, you know, managed accounts such as, you know, Time Warner. We built the Roadrunner backbone back in the day um, on AT&T Fiber, um, you know, managed Viacom and all their, uh, their business units. Interactive Corp back in the day, the Barry Diller conglomerate. So, you know, saw a lot of really cool stuff at a young age. Um, you know, my biggest goal at AT&T was always to, you know, get whatever training I could and absorb it as much as I could there. And, you know, there's no better place that trains people than AT&T. So that was really the foundation for me starting in the industry. What specific kind of training were they providing? I mean, it was anything, you know, from you know, a POTS line, um, you know, to frame relay and ATM. There was, uh, there were negotiation trainings. There was, you know, strategic selling, account planning, account mapping, you know, really anything that you can imagine. AT&T had a training course for it. So, um, probably the best one that we did, um, was one that we set up with our team locally up there when we brought in the CIO at the time for, I believe it was the New York Times. And he came in and did a full day session with us on, you know, how do they buy? You know, what questions should we be asking? Um, you know, when we go into these, you know, these large companies, um, and what really keeps a CIO or a CTO up at night? And how do you solve problems for them instead of selling them products? That was probably the, you know, the biggest takeaway I had from the, the training that I had from AT&T. It's, you know, most of those real life examples on, you know, how do you buy? Why do you buy? Who do you buy from? Um, that was really probably the best one that I went through there. So you cut your teeth selling a large network globally at AT&T right out of college. And you were still, did you stay in New York the entire time that you were there? I was there for probably four years up in New York. Um, and then met my wife up in, up in New York. Um, she was working for a joint venture at the time called Concert, which was a joint venture between BT and AT&T. Uh, she was a native Texan. And I said, hey, you know, let's, let's give it a shot. Let's go down to Dallas. Um, you know, she got to go back home. Um, I got to, you know, live someplace else in the country, um, which for the people who have never left New York, it's a whole different world out there. So um, you may want to end up giving it a shot and not waiting till you're 60 and retiring to Florida. How how does a a Long Islander uh, integrate into a place like Dallas, Texas? It's like sandpaper. It, you know, it, it it sort of takes a while. Um, you know, just the you know probably the, the best story I have from that is when I went to the grocery store for the first time and I've got you know all my food on the conveyor belt and the woman's taking it and you know scanning it through, and then some guy's taking my food and putting it in bags for me and offers to take it out to my car. I'm like, people in the grocery store in New York don't even want to talk to you. Nevertheless, touch your food or, or bag it for you. Um, so that was probably, you know, my my first introduction to, you know, Southern hospitality is the guy at the grocery store, you know, bagging my stuff for me and asking me to take it out to my car. That's funny. Um, 
Yeah, it was, a, it, was, it was a bit of a culture shock. But you know, I tell people, you know, there's sort of the three best things about Texas and probably the South in general is no state income tax, no winter, and no traffic. Um, you know, you really can't compete with those three things. Can you really claim no traffic, though? I mean, Austin, Texas is pretty brutal now. Does Dallas, Dallas still have, has taxes, tech, uh, traffic these days? But not compared to New York. All right. Yeah, so when true. you land at LaGuardia and you try to get into Manhattan and it takes you an hour to go seven or eight miles, it's a whole different type of traffic up there than it is, is down here. Yeah, I hear that. I've been ex- trying to explain that to the local Raleighites now that I've been here for the last two years. And they seem to think that traffic is when there's a lot of cars on the road. And I have to explain to them that <laughs> that's not traffic. Rush hour is when there's so many cars on the road that no one's moving and haven't moved for the last 30 minutes. And you have no idea exactly. if and when you may be moving again. Exactly. All right. So you make it down to Dallas. You're still working at AT&T? Yeah, still working at AT&T down here. Um, I was managing at the time the... Um, the Texas-based entities for Viacom and Interactive Corp. So that was Match.com, Hotels.com, uh, at the time Blockbuster. That that went well, um, and then Westwood One Radio and a couple of others others down here. Um, you know, was fortunate enough to still report up to the team in New York in that media vertical. And you know, one of probably the most influential person in my career um, that I met was through AT and T. It was a guy named Eric Shapiro. Um, Eric was my um, executive sponsor at AT&T for a lot, a lot of our large dot-com accounts. Um, Eric then later went on and became the CEO of Telex. And I was one of the first people that Eric had hired over at Telex um, you know, to start the Dallas office and to run Dallas and Phoenix for them. This was right after Telex did the acquisition of the DL, DLR, the Digital Realty Meet Me Rooms across the country. I think there were 13 of them at the time. Um, before that, Telex had one side at 60 Hudson Street and 56 Marietta. So this was a huge expansion for them. Um, you know, the GI partners went in and brought in Eric to, to run the company. And, you know, fortunate for me, I knew Eric, he needed somebody in Texas, and I was his guy. So um, that's sort of how I got wrapped into to the Telex model, um, which has, you know, helped me going forward in my career. Did you and uh, Hunter happen to cross paths at all when you were there? Yeah, we did. So Hunter was there, uh, I'd probably say for a year or two while I was there in the beginning. Um, and then subsequently- He's also a Long Island guy too. He is, yep. Yeah, my, my fondest memory of Hunter was, you know, obviously his knowledge of, of the industry, number one. Um, but I think we had Bring Your Kid to Work Day up in New York at, at one point, And him and his son come in dressed identically the same. His son couldn't have been more than six or seven at the time, but khaki <laughs> pants, blue blazer, same tie, same belt. Um, it was like having a mini hunter in the office. It was, it was pretty cool to say. All right. So you crush it down in Dallas for Telex for how long were you there? You were there for a couple of years. Yeah. Six or seven years. I was there. I mean, I had a bunch of jobs there, you know, sales and then, you know, helped them start the channel there, ran the channel from the West coast for a while. Um, and then my last job was, um, global strategic relationships, you know, working with Tata, um, you know, helping them build what is now the cloud exchange uh myself and Dower brown are the you know the guys who put pen to paper on that um and really realized that you know we had dumped all this money into this ethernet exchange right no one got on board so what do we do with you know this infrastructure that we had at the time i said well you know let's use this to connect the cloud companies you know take one port connect to any cloud company that you want 
Um, that was the idea back in the day. And, you know, obviously today it, it's a big market for not only for Telex, but for digital, but for Equinix. Um, you know, like really, that's how we thought up and designed the cloud exchange. It was from using those assets that were sitting there, you know, collecting dust from what we thought was going to be the Ethernet exchange and just repurposing them for the cloud exchange. Interesting. Interesting. So then how and why did you leave? Because the company was doing extremely well. I'm sure you were doing extremely well. Um, why leave? Why move on to, to some place else? Um, you know, at that time, we still had a lot of our resources from Telex. We're, we're up in New York. I didn't want to go back up to New York. Um, you know, the team there was, was great to me. There just wasn't a lot more upward mobility for me in the organization at that time. Um, so, you know, made a decision to, you know, go out and look at, at other opportunities and was really fortunate to meet Grant and the team at Cologics and, you know, really essentially recreate the wheel for them down in, in Dallas for what I did for, for Telex. Gotcha. And digital, I mean, when you were working with Telex, you weren't working out of the InfoMark property, were you? No. So, no, I, I was out of 2323 Bryan Street and then I was over at, the newer facility, which is 8435 Stemmons. Um, Telex or Digital doesn't have any presence at the Infomart, but I had known the Infomart. I had sold against the Infomart, you know, being sort of the 10,000 pound gorilla in Dallas. You know, everyone wanted to be at the Infomart. We had this, you know, small high rise in Dallas at, at 2323 Ryan Street, um, you know, with at the time, you know, had had average carrier density, uh, but we had space and we had power and we were, were super flexible back in the day. Um, you know, so that's really how we grew the business. Gotcha. So then you move into your, you know, former competitor, uh, working with CoLogics, and so I mean that building went through lots of change and growth with between 2012 and 2015. I think that's where the uh, the owners of Infomart really started to understand um, exactly what was going on in their building and how they could best start taking advantage of of what was going on at that property. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I've had really good landlords and I've had really bad landlords. One of the best landlords I've ever had as a tenant was John Saputis and, and Andrew Gold over at the Infomart. You know, really bent over backwards for us ecologic at the time. What do you guys need? How can we help you guys? Which, again, was a complete 180 to the management team before that inside of that building. So, um, you know, they made our life a lot easier there. But, you know, with that, you know, came their changing business model. Um, you know, they're wanting to get more into the turnkey space where they had traditionally been, you know, that building had been more of a real estate asset, you know, selling shell space to people. Um, so, you know, there was pluses and minuses or opportunities and challenges, but, um, you know, those two guys, um, you know, really did a good job of managing that building and subsequently got a very good exit. on. Yeah. Andrew, I mean, both those guys, I, I intend on getting on the podcast at some point here in the near future. So if you're listening, Andrew. And John, I'm I'm coming after you here here soon, um, but I'm curious. I've, I have a theory that the play that they started doing, where they were building out basically their own "quote unquote" meet me room inside the property that was going to be operated by Infomart, um, and starting to sell some co-location was somewhat of a, a power play to force the hand of a ViaWest or Cologix or Equinix, who was already in that property to make an acquisition. What, what was your two cents on how that evolved? But also I'm really curious because I don't think we've talked about this yet. 
what it's going to be like now that Equinix owns that property for, for the likes of Cologix and now Flux Central, formerly BioWest, and um, yeah. the other competitors in that, in that space. I think, you know, they had an idea that it was going to be a lot easier than it ended up being, right? You've got this building that's got 150 some odd carriers. Um, you know, we own the building. Why can't we just go ahead and do this? And I think you've seen the same thing with some of the neutrality sites where there wasn't a common building in the room. And they sort of got to go create these things from scratch. Even though the carriers are in the building, they're with Equinix, they're with Cologix, they're with Digit, you know, with, with you know, legacy telex sites. Um, they've got established point of presence in the building. Um, you know, unless you sort of drop the hammer from a real estate perspective, say, hey, any conduit that comes into this building needs to, you know, come into, you know, the building meeting room first. You know, it's a lot harder to do to get people to sort of build in on spec, even though they're in the same building. Um, so I, I think, you know, they thought it was going to be, uh, I think, easier than it ended up being. They still did, did an excellent job. Um, you know, I think they exited there with you know, 12 or 15 carriers in the meeting room when they started with zero like two years ago. So, um, you know, I, I think we've seen a lot of this in the industry where you've got these REITs that go in and buy these buildings and try to become operators. and Oh, you know, we've got 100 carriers in here. You know, we're going to offer them to all of our customers. And you look in there, and they don't have rights to any of the carriers. They don't have rights to any of the conduits. You know, their their tenants have them. Um, their tenants, you know, really don't want to play nice in the sand with them because now they're a competitor in the building. They've got a much lower cost basis because they're, they're the building owner. Uh, so they're sort of going to try to shield some of those and protect their interests and their meeting rooms and their value. Because when you look at sort of valuations, you look at pricing in any of the markets the highest price you're going to get in any market is going to be in a carrier hotel. Um, you know, that's where the rates are the highest um, in any, in any city or a carrier hotel because um, the connectivity is there. So I think you've got, you know, sort of a chicken and the egg where, you know, the tenants are trying to protect their interest in the building and the building owner is trying to increase the value of their building by, you know, getting into this space with interconnection and selling retail polo or, you know, turnkey wholesale in buildings that, you know, traditionally hasn't been available before. So how, how does Equinix now owning that building affect what's going to happen in that space? I would, if I'm Flexential and I'm, uh, um, logics, who else is in there? I think is SunGuard in that property as well. I guess, uh, Zayo's in there. And those are probably the big, the, the three biggest players in there. So are they just, I mean, have, do they, have they signed super long-term contracts such that they're kind of set? Yeah, Never. most of these guys have 10 or 15-year agreements with multiple 10 or 15-year uh, rights on, on renewing there. So, um, you know, I really don't see any of them going anywhere. And what you, what you did see is a flurry of activity right before close. So Zayo took new turnkey space there. Um, I believe Cologix has uh, additional space there that they'll either be announcing or um, you know, we'll be coming to the market soon. So, uh, I think people were trying to collect as much space and as much capacity as they could before this closed, because there's uncertainty on what's going to go on, um, with an operator now owning the entire asset. It'll be very, very interesting to see how that evolves. Um, yeah. and actually bring from Flexential's perspective, you know, they've sort of focused away from that building. They've got a lot of legacy space in there and they're happy to sell it to customers, you know, if customers churn. Um, but you know, their focus has really been out in the suburbs in Richardson and Plano, and they've done very well in that, that space. Um, you know, I don't see 
at least from my perspective, that as a strategic um, expansion site for them when they can just go keep building up the suburbs because they're doing very well. Yeah, and that actually is exactly where I was going to take the take the conversation. So there's been a ton of building going on outside in the suburbs. Um, millions of square feet have been brought live within the last couple of years, let alone the last couple of months. How is that affecting the marketplace in and around just Dallas? I mean, obviously, everyone needs to get back to one of the carrier hotels and internet exchanges. So it's probably driving more business into the InfoMart. Um, and other related exchanges downtown. Uh, but, you know, are people, is it kind of cutthroat now where people are just competing for everything and dropping their pants or can people not build fast enough or how, how do you see things playing out right now? It, it's an absolute bloodbath down here. Um, it's really a buyer's market down here. Um, you know, I've seen prices, the, the bottom fall out of it, right? I went and did a, a deal. Uh, probably two months ago, you know, I got pricing of a deal from a bunch of providers, and I was shocked at the price point that we saw. Um, you know, that was really one of the reasons why we sort of had to shift our business to start looking at other technologies because, you know, the data center deals are fewer and far between now, um, and the pricing is just, you know, it's it's very competitive down here. I mean, you've got people waiving install on, on one-year terms. You've got price points for 50 kW, which would have been price points for 250 kW a couple of years ago or 500 kW. Um, there's a lot of new builds out here. There's, you know, there's going to be X amount of deals in the market, right? And everyone's fighting for that X amount of deals. Um, it's super competitive. I think, you know, people are trying to um, you know, bring to the market their additional services that, you know, if you want to go colo now, we've got the ability to take you to cloud later. We've got direct connect. Um, but you know, in this market, there's four people who have that same exact offering. It's Flexential, Internet, uh, Data Bank, and Tierpoint. You know, essentially yes. similar product mixes in the market. So you got four people that all have brand new space in the market, like brand new space, um, that are all fighting for the same deal. So it's, it's a very there. good buyer's market right now. QTS is down there too, right? Yeah, so QGS down here, I think, you know, we've seen a shift from, from those guys, you know, obviously with their announcement sort of away from from cloud and really more into the hyperscale. I'd put them more in a bucket with 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 a Cyrus one now than I would with one of those other players. Um, you know, they when you look at their success, it's been at, on, on the hyperscale side. Um, and I think they'll continue to do very well. Although the the markets didn't like their announcement, I thought it was a very good shift for them to focus on what they're really good at. And that's what they're really good at. Yeah. Yeah. And Cyrus one to that, to that same vein is, has been making more and more of a shift towards just the hyperscalers. And um, it's probably a topic for another time, but <laughs> so you're seeing a ton of supply flood the market. It, it still baffles me why it is that so many providers um, will jump into these markets when they know damn well that there's going to be another couple major providers dropping tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars to build new facilities down there at the exact same time yeah like the biggest example we can say that's happening right now is the atlanta market why are so many people taking such big capacity in atlanta and building so big for a market that that traditionally has done let's say five megs of absorption a year to have the amount of capacity that's being built there now 
Um, you know, they either have to have to have big hip pocket hyperscale deals. Um, I mean, that's really the only reason why I could think you would go into such in this, to that market with such a big campus or or large deployments. Yeah, it's it's an interesting conversation, and I'll probably be bringing another um, PE person online. I had Raul Martinique on, I think he's episode like three or four, and had a good conversation with him prior to him jumping over and leading the uh, data bank ship. Um, but I, I just I don't understand it either. I just don't get it. I don't understand why we have so many players building mega data centers in these markets. It's it's as though they're still operating off of a playbook that existed 10 years ago and aren't aware of current current market realities. But um, I mean, people are still buying, right? We're still seeing massive deals being done in, in all the major markets, including Dallas. So it's not like these these guys are sitting, sitting these facilities are sitting empty. I mean, a, a lot of them have anchor tenants in tow before they, they build, right? You would hope so, right? And, and DataBank did a very good job, right? They partnered with Georgia, with Georgia Tech down there. Um, so they, they have an immediate um, ecosystem that they're going to be building around down there. But, you know, when you look at, you know, deals that were 40 racks four years ago, there are 15 racks now, there are 10 racks now, because the majority of the stuff is in virtualized and put up into the cloud, whether it's a private cloud, a multi-tenant cloud, or on, on the public side. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of space being built. I'm seeing a big shift towards cloud from an enterprise perspective, which is making those those polo footprints smaller and smaller. Um, so yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see how this stuff shakes out. I so still I think, think you've got a little bit of you know people still wanting to get apps out of their their own buildings and move stuff in into data centers. We see more and more of that because you know now the life cycle on their existing data center is seven or ten years. They don't want to refurbish. Um, or upgrade their facilities. So we'll still see some organic growth that way in the market. Um, but I think a lot of the growth that, that is being announced, um, you know, to the market is really, it's the hyperscale stuff that's covering up a lot of the, um, the attrition that we're seeing from a co-location perspective. Yeah, I hear that. And I, I would have to assume that seeing how all that was playing out led to you making the decision to jump out on your own and start your own consulting firm back in uh summer of last year. Yeah, I mean it was it was a bunch of factors. Um, you know, probably the biggest one um is that, you know, I've always sort of been stuck. Not stuck. I've always no stuck is a good word. Uh, you know, stuck with the footprint that we that, that I had at the time. Right. You know, we did a great job at Telex, right? You had a you had a flag in every NFL city. At Cologix, you know, there's no one else to go to in Canada besides Cologix. So we had great product, great location, um, which you know allowed me to build a lot of different relationships, you know, around North America and around the world. Uh, but was still sort of limited to to those locations um, and those types of data centers. So now I can go in and talk to customers. I can put them anywhere that's a good fit for them. Um, instead of trying to shoehorn, you know, a square peg into a round hole, I can say, hey, guys, this is where you should go, uh, you know, based off the criteria that you put forward from a technical perspective. And then, you know, how do we talk through what size come, what size vendor is going to be a good fit for you, right? Do you want to be a four cabinet customer in, in Cyrus? Probably not. Um, do you want to be a four cabinet customer in Flex Central or Data Bank? Yeah, you're going to get a lot more love and care there. 
um, you know, than you would at, you know, somebody who's really focused on, on, on hyperscale deals. Um, so it's not only really feature functionality, it's more to do with the relationship that you're going to have with some of these vendors. And, you know, customers for the most part, they just don't know. You know, they hear names in the news, um, you know, they hear names in the industry and they say, hey, you know, I need to be in this place. Well, most times you don't. Um, and it's really having that understanding with them of, hey, I need to be in this place for these reasons. And let's go find you that right place. Yeah, amen. Hallelujah, man. That's the exact same reason why I left QTS back in 2011. I wanted to be far more of a uh, a solution architect for my customer than trying to keep trying to shove them in that round peg into a square hole, as you as you said. Um, so let's talk about how you got involved with OpenIX and exactly what you know for for those listening who haven't heard of what OpenIX is. What the hell is OpenIX and how has it evolved over the years to what it is today? Sure. So uh, OpenIX is a nonprofit standards body, um, which was originally built on building standards around interconnection and data. Um, you know, really helping to foster a open platform for interconnection and the transferring of internet traffic between networks, between content providers and networks. And really what our goal there is, is to you know, set standards. We said, hey, if you want to go into a data center, we're going to tell you exactly what's in that data center and how it operates um, because they've gone and, and they've certified with us. So the best example I can sort of give of that is I had a customer three months ago come to me and say, hey, I need data center space in India. I'm like, shit, I don't know anybody in India. You know, I can go to data center map or some of the awesome tools that Intellisys or Ibon have and I can say, hey, there's two data centers in India. And I'm not going to know if this place is worth a shit or not. Um, but then I'm like, wait, why don't I look in our OpenIX directory? And we sure enough had two data centers that are OpenIX certified. So I know right off the bat that you know they've passed certain thresholds to be certified and that I've got a much higher confidence of putting people into that data center because I know that they are certified with OpenIX either on the exchange side or on the data center side. Um, so really, that's what we're out to do is, you know, and we're going to continue to build more standards out um, as we go along, but um, it's a nonprofit standards body that's really trying to keep the industry honest and foster, um, you know, interconnection um, around the world. And you know, when you look at the history of where people have connected, it's been you know the major carrier hotels, right? And there's been X amount of peering exchanges that were run by some of the the large, and we call them, I guess, commercially operated exchanges. Um, we've seen a shift probably over the last four or five years with links and D-Kicks and a lot of community-run exchanges really branching that out. So you're not stuck at Hudson Street. You're not stuck at Equinix and San Jose. Um, you know, you've got the ability to go into different data centers at much lower price points uh, with much different interconnection cost models um, and be able to exchange traffic. Um, and really, that's what our goal is, is to you know branch out and you know, help create more exchanges around the country and around the world where we're not just stuck to picking five or six different interconnection spots. Customers have a choice of where to go and they know what they're going to get when they go to those places because they're certified. Is it safe to assume that if a facility is OpenIX certified that they also have some sort of IX deployed in that property? Um, for the most part, yeah. I mean, th- there'll be data centers that certify because they want to certify based upon their their interconnection model. Maybe it's not based upon them having an exchange, but 
predominantly we see data centers that have exchanges come in and, and get certified. They always certify the data center and and or also certify the exchange. And to be clear, OpenIX doesn't operate its own IX. It's simply so I guess let me just ask that. OpenIX doesn't operate its own internet exchanges separate yeah, from we, we operate nothing. Yeah. All we do is certify exchanges um, and, and data centers. So you tell us what's there. We're gonna go back and take a look, make sure that what you said is correct. And then we then bring that out to the community as a large saying. This entity has passed this criteria that we've set, um, and they are now OpenIX certified. So how much have you, I mean, I, I would assume that you know the history of OpenIX and, I, and how it's evolved and why it was originally created. Um, can you dig into some of that at all? Because I have stories that I've heard <laughs> through, through the industry. Um, and I, I used to train some analysts uh, that used to call in that were asking, you know, is OpenIX going to make Equinix obsolete um, related questions? But I'm curious what your, your, uh, your, your take is on the history of, of how it got started and why it got started. Yeah, I mean, it was funny. I mean, um, this really was the brainchild of, of Dave Temkin and a few others. Um, and Dave is, you know, the person who essentially built and created, you know, the net. Netflix architecture and network globally. So, you know, somebody who knows what they're doing that's been in the space. Um, but when you look at it from a content provider perspective or even a network provider perspective, again, the interconnection points and the exchanges were concentrated to such a few buildings inside of the US. And it was super expensive to go into those buildings. Um, you know, there wasn't a lot of transparency inside of them. So the goal was to, you know, really try to adopt the European model of interconnection. Um, you know, which I think helped fostered uh, D-Kicks and links coming into the U.S. And it really drew a lot of these nonprofit exchanges. When we were at Collogix, you know, we, so hold on, we before, had a choice, right? Do we go build them? Okay. For, for our listeners, for those listening, what can you define what the European model is versus the U.S. model? Yeah, I mean, they don't really run a lot of commercial for-profit exchanges there, and they're really, they're distributed. So if you're in interaction in one building and you're in uh, somebody else's data center and you know so if you're in in let's say london right um you'll be in one building in london the exchange will have a presence in all three major buildings in london right so you don't have you're not beholden to the one building where that exchange sits you can go choose your data center provider and still connect to that exchange and that exchange is then connected to each other through a fabric so you have the ability not only to connect the people in the main carrier hotel, but the other two buildings also. Um, so it really alleviates the, the premiums that people put on the carrier hotels by allowing you to connect to the exchanges from you know, multiple buildings inside of the same metro, essentially. Um, they have traditionally have not been run by the data centers. And in the U.S., they have predominantly been run by the data center operators. Gotcha. And I, I interrupted. One of the things that we did at Cologix was, yeah, one of the things we did at Cologix was, you know, we had the ability or could have had the ability to go build an exchange in, you know, what are now, you know, tier two markets, right? In Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver, Columbus, Minneapolis, and all these, you know, different tier two and tier, tier three cities. They took a different approach than what everyone else had taken before them. They said, hey, let's go out and find, you know, community exchanges. You know, run by the community. 
um, you know, nonprofit organizations and let's help fund these guys with either space or power or actual money um, and make it so, you know, we don't want to run an exchange. And what, that wasn't our business. Our business was to sell space and power and cross-connect. Um, and having these exchanges in there helps to draw those content providers and customers in there. So, you know, that's one of the, I think, the strengths of Cologics and their, uh, you know, ability to see what was going on in the market. Is, hey, we don't want to operate an exchange. We want to be able to help the exchanges that are in our community grow. Um, you know, I saw multiple exchanges at Telex. You know, we dumped money into exchanges in Texas and in Phoenix. And, you know, eight years later, there's 10 members on it. So um, I think it was a very good strategic move by Cologic to sort of take that approach as opposed to let's go out and build one from scratch. Gotcha. So the the heavy hitters, such as the Microsofts and Netflix and um, Facebook, uh, Google, who were originally part of the OpenIX movement and spearheading it, are they are they still actively involved? Um, they're still actively involved as members. Um, you know, they they did a very good job seeding the organization, um, and you know, for the most part, funding it for a while. Uh, you know, to, to get it off the ground. Um, you know, so they're still members, they're still active, um, but they've, you know, sort of turned it over to the new regime to say, Hey, where do we go from here? Um, you know, let's get some, you know, invigorated, you know, different people in the organization. And that's just, you know, the nature of turning over boards. Um, so I think with the new board that we have in place here now, you're going to see a lot of changes coming from, from us from OpenIX. We're going to start to look at, you know, different standards outside of just data centers and internet exchanges, right? So how do we put together a standard for, for cloud connectivity? You know, everyone's got a cloud connect product, but there's really no standards around. You can go into a data center and they'll tell you that they have an AWS Direct Connect. Well, that's a big difference in AWS Direct Connect where AWS isn't in your facility to somebody who has it inside of their facility, their actual node. Um, or I can connect via Megaport or Packet Fabric or IX Reach, right? They all have... Their, their benefits to them. But when you go into a data center, you don't really know what you're getting into unless you know to ask those specific questions. So I think we'll start to build some standards around that. We're going to take a look at Internet of Things. How do we um, you know, start to build standards around you know, how do all these billions of devices communicate to each other? What are the standards inside of that, uh, that vertical? So you know, we'll take a look at you know, building some, some standards there. We'll increase um, our exchange standards they have different tiers and data center standards and put together an edge standard right if you've got you know a hut under a cell site someplace that's obviously not the same as a data center standard that's a different set of criteria um, that we're starting to build to put a certification around edge facilities um, so you know you'll, you'll see a lot of stuff coming from us in the future as we start to sort of shift the organization and go beyond data center and internet exchange um, into you know what we see as some of the hyper growth um, segments of the market, and you know start to put some standards around those. Gotcha. So that's interesting. I, I had no idea that that's what OpenIX is working on these days. The reason why I was asking about the history of OpenIX is because I've heard through the grapevine that the reason why we don't see more from OpenIX and the the key stakeholders who are originally part of the game plan, the Microsofts and Facebooks and, and Netflixes of the world were approached by uh, the 100-pound gorilla, 
the Equinix of the of the world and said, look, if you guys just shut up and stop pressing this so hard, um, we will, you know, drastically reduce your cross-connect fees uh, such that it becomes, you know, a, a non-issue for you moving forward. So that the major, you know, quote-unquote hyperscalers that we've been talking about have a different rate, you know, as they should because they're at scale in a lot of these facilities than everyone else, but, you know, not making as much noise as they used to in the marketplace. Have you, have you, you know, you want to comment on that or would you rather stay away from it? No, I mean, I'll, I'll comment on anything, right? <laughs> um, I don't believe that that's the case. Um, you know, knowing Dave and knowing, and I'm not going to speak for him, um, I don't believe that there was any pretty quote quo there on, you know, him stepping out, out of OpenIX. He's done a great job founding the organization and is a believer in the mission. Um, you know, I don't believe that, um, you know, Equinix would even care, right? You know, they chose not to get involved at the time. You know, now, will we try to bring them back into the fold now that we've sort of re-architected our mission? Yeah, because it's not solely based on interconnection. It's not solely based on exchanges now. It's based upon, you know, some of their hyper-growth products also around, uh, you know, cloud connectivity. So um, I don't really think that that was something that, went into account um, with, with the founders. Um, we just hadn't seen or heard that before. Um, I think you, what we've seen is a lot of the content guys really go out and um, you know, try to mitigate their risk from a vendor perspective, but also from a geography perspective. Um, and I think, again, D-Kicks and Links and folks like that who have exchanges in multiple different buildings in the same metro are allowing them to do that now where they couldn't do it before because the transport was too expensive going back from the suburb data center into the carrier hotel. Um, now that you've got those distributed interconnection points and exchanges, it makes it a lot easier for, uh, for those guys to make decisions and to you know, spread out their, their footprints. So let's briefly touch on DKIX links and, and some of the other major internet exchange providers that have been building out presence in and around North America. What, what is the main value proposition for these, these organizations to start doing so? Um, you know, they've, they operate in and around Europe, but in the last couple of years, we've seen a lot of them starting to migrate and de- deploy into the U S marketplace. If you have the ability through, um, you know, an Epsilon or a Megaport or, really any of the major global uh, carriers to connect directly to one of those internet exchanges in a facility elsewhere. Like, I guess I'm just, I don't, I never fully understood why it is and how it is that they've decided to come into the U S marketplace. And are they looking to compete with the internet exchanges here in the U S or what's the role that they're trying to play and value proposition? I I absolutely think that they're looking to compete with the, with the incumbent exchanges, um, you know, their value that they're bringing to the table is that, Hey, you know, we'll have a note at Hudson street, right. But we'll also have something out at what was DuPont is now QTS. They'll have something, you know, at a, multiple different data centers outside of Hudson street. Right. Um, so you've got the ability to not have to go pay $400 of KW and Hudson street to go connect to it to an exchange. Cause before that was the only way you could do it. Um, you know, 
this was probably before the megaport and the epsilons and the ix reaches you know really became relevant in, in the market um, you know there were some ability to broadcast yourself in another exchange um, in a different market um, but it really wasn't a um, it wasn't mainstream as as it is now so i you know i definitely think that these exchanges are trying to compete um, i think they're making some headway and they have a cult following over over in Europe, right? And they're trying to take that business model over here. And they've had, you know, some good success in, in some markets. I think, you know, if you look at New York, obviously they've done very well there. Um, you know, okay. sort of taking the um, ability or enabling the ability for people not have to go to Eighth Avenue or Hudson Street. Um, they now have a distributed architecture. They can connect to more people because they're in more places. So let's use a tangible example. Um, you know, let's say in the Dallas marketplace, is is Amsix or Lynx or any one of the providers that we're talking about there? Uh, DKX is here. DKX, All right? So DKX is in Dallas. Are they then requiring the carriers to deploy gear and connect directly with that exchange in that local market? Or are they simply providing an on-ramp for those customers in that data center to connect back to the other DKIX internet exchanges where they can then connect to any of the other carriers? So, and I'm not fully versed on, on their, their whole offering, but in Dallas, I know that they've got their own standalone exchange in Dallas, right? You want to connect to their exchange, you can connect to it here and it, it serves people in Dallas. Now, I think they've got the ability to maybe connect to their other exchanges around the country and around the world. Um, but, you know, they're putting a local, they have a local exchange here in Dallas to serve Dallas traffic. Um, and they've done it a little bit differently, right? Then if you wanted to be on the Equinix exchange, you had to be in 1950, right? Or you had to get, you know, brought back in 2323 Bryan uh, Street from their legacy switch and data space. You know, they were the largest, the only internet exchange in Dallas was Switch and Data and Equinix. They combined to make one massive um, exchange here. And if you wanted to, to connect to it, you had to be a physical customer inside of their facility, right? And, you know, anybody knows, you know, Equinix is not ever going to be the cheapest, right? And, you know, they deserve somewhat of the value that they get on, on their price point. Um, eKicks comes in and, you know, has a more distributed architecture in multiple different data centers that are going to have a much lower price point, right? So they're trying to see the exchanges. They've, they've done a good job here in Dallas. They've done an excellent job in New York. Um, but yeah, don't get me wrong. They're trying to compete directly against the incumbent exchange in each one of the cities. Interesting. And they're, they're attracting carriers to also connect directly and deploy infrastructure in the facilities that they're, that they're existing within. Yeah, that's, that's sort of the benefit, right? So these other data centers that they're in, they may go give them space, they may go give them power. Um, but when you come to DKICS and you ask, hey, where can I connect to you guys? They're going to say, yeah, here's the four data centers or whatever I'm in in Dallas. You know, go out and look at these guys because you can directly connect to us here. Yeah, that's that's been... Um, so in light of that, what is your agnostic opinion about how that's going to affect the likes of the the traditional Telex, Equinix, IX uh, monopoly in the marketplace? Even if they see really good growth from a DKIX perspective or anybody else, it's still it's a rounding error for, for everybody else, right? It's a rounding error for, for Equinix. You know, they've got such an embedded base. Um, 
you know, unless you see a max, a mass exodus, like you saw in Florida, where everyone went to flicks. Um, and really that exchange started overnight and became an instant success because the members decided, Hey, we don't want to go to Terramark anymore and connect to that exchange. Um, you know, I, I still don't see it as a material impact on any of the big players. Um, it's just, it's another option inside of the market for people to go to. You know, they, they may be connected to two internet exchanges, right? It gives them diversity um, in, inside of that metro. So, I mean, I don't see it as, as a material impact on, on any of the, the major players. So for what it's worth, um, you know, part of the, the rationale behind the comment that I made about the original IX members um, you know, being approached by the likes of, of Equinex and Telex and saying, look, guys, you know, we'll, we'll give you what you, what you originally wanted, which is more fa- favorable uh, pricing and relationship with our IXs around the world because of the, the, the hefty price tag uh, involved with these for-profit IXs. Um, you know, I, I've always seen I've always seen the, the likes of what happened at Flix, as you mentioned, as something that is going to slowly start to materialize across the country and around the world until I started hearing rumors that the activity, as I mentioned, was occurring, which, which basically made it such that the major players who were buying these cross-connects started to no longer have a drastic need to migrate those connections. And so they quieted down and, um, you know, didn't make such a stink about, you know, trying to find an alternative being, the, being the libertarian that I am, I'm all about competition. Um, and I, I encourage, and I've appreciated all the new players coming to the marketplace. Um, but I'm also a capitalist and I also know that, you know, capitalists will do what they need to do to, you know, build walls around their, their engines, their, their cash engines. And for obviously uh, the two largest data center p- providers in the world, they have very, very large cash agents in these cross-connect fees that they're achieving. And so they're, they're going to do whatever they need to do to make sure that that continues. Um, if that means that they have to have like a loss leader with a handful of their, their major IX buyers, um, that doesn't strike me as a, a move that they wouldn't do. Uh, it strikes me as a smart strategic move for them to do. Yeah, no, I'm. Um, I don't disagree with the chemist, right? Um, but I also think, you know, when we, when I originally heard of OpenIX, right, I sat in a meeting and I was actually, you know, I'm, there's a quote out from you someplace going, "Hey, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it," or, or something like that. Because um, when you look at, it's not easy just to move your peering someplace else, right? You've got these large core network routers that have thousands of hundreds of connections into them. And they're super expensive, right? Just because you want, you don't like the incumbent, doesn't mean the business is going to give you a million dollars to go buy another core switch, and you have the time to migrate a hundred connections out of it, right? So these guys are always going to have a presence inside of the incumbent provider, um, but at least now they have the ability to have options outside, of it, right? Now whether they take advantage of them or not, um, at least those options are out there now where they weren't a feasible option before. So, uh, you know, I think. For the most part, OpenIX has, um, you know, on our stated original mission, I think we've done an excellent job delivering on that. Uh, you know, we've opened up sort of the market. We've opened up people's eyes into, you know, what's going on. And they, now they know what they're getting into because we've got those standards in place. So, 
Um, you know, I think the founders um, at the time had a had a mission. They accomplished it. Um, and now, how do we take that initial mission and how do we grow it and how do we benefit more people inside of inside of the ecosystem? I want to get back to some of the stuff we were talking about early on uh, in your career and just pick your brain, leveraging the experience that you've had for for those listeners who are relatively new into the data center industry um, and or the the data center, what we call marketplace, which involves cloud providers and interconnections and um, even the hardware that's going in, you know, the whole the holistic view as to what the hell is going on inside these facilities. What what recommendations would you give them uh, for those who are stepping into this this space? Well, number one, I would tell them to take your boot camp, right? Um, and that's not just for free advertisement. It's probably the best run education that I've seen, sort of carrier or data center provider agnostic out there. Um, it really gives people the baselines of of the data center industry, right? You know, and you're probably a firm believer that I am. I can teach anybody data center in a day or two. Right, but that's not the only part of the ecosystem that customers want to talk about, right? They want to talk about network. They want to talk about, you know, cloud. Uh, so being an expert on data center anymore, you know, being just being an expert on data center isn't good enough anymore in the market. Right. You need to understand how workloads and applications talk to each other, how connectivity works, how you know, and also how data centers um, are, are constructed. So. It's not as easy as it was probably five or six years ago when you didn't have any of these other things to learn about. Um, my biggest issue now when I go out and source space for people is uneducated account executives. I mean, it, it's unbelievable the stuff that we go through, you know, on a daily, a weekly, monthly basis. We're just trying to explain what customers are trying to do. And, you know, these kids, you know, I guess we call them kids now, just they don't understand. Um, so, you know, that's probably the, the biggest thing that I see right now is, you know, you've got a lot of salespeople who are trying to lead with price and it even goes into some of the management that you see now, you know, trying to lead with price, trying to lead with three months and three installations, like shit, we'll, we'll take it, but you don't have to do that stuff. Right. Um, especially on the agent side now, you know, we get offered three months and I'm like, guys, that's not why we're buying from you. It's not just based on price. Price is a big component of it, um, but that's not what, at the end of the day, what makes the decision. Um, and it's not always the best thing to go throw three months at a deal or, you know, lower your pricing. You know, there is a value to every data center in the market, right? And there's a consumer for every one of those data centers in the market. Um, a tier three facility should not be price competitive against a tier two facility. Um, and they are fighting for the same deals because the sales teams are on it on are uneducated um, about what their sort of their place is in, in the market. Um, you've got retail people fighting with wholesale. You've got wholesale trying to sell retail. Um, so you know, I think there's a lot of um, misunderstanding on you know really what each company's value proposition is to the market, and that's why we're seeing um, you know at least a portion of why we see some of this price pressure. Yeah, now you understand exactly why I even started doing training in the first place, man. Because back in 2011, uh, I started doing deals. I just found so many of these account reps had no clue what the heck it was that they were doing. And I started saying to providers, I'm not going to be feeding you guys business unless you let me train some of your people. 
and I was doing that for free initially until people were like, why the hell are you doing this for free? You should be charging for this. And so I was like, huh, there's, there's an interesting business here. But the other interesting thing, and you may have come across this and I think you've alluded to it, but we had a, a deal with a provider who will remain nameless where the CEO got on the call with the client and started offering, you know, free, free, this, free, that super reduced pricing. Um, and we talked to the, to the CEO afterwards and we said, look, what, you know, now you can't renege on all of this stuff. It's way lower than you had to in order to win the business. And what's going to happen is if for whatever reason, you're no longer at the company in a couple of years, or there's a new sales manager that comes in or chief revenue officer, they're going to look at this deal and they're going to say, this makes no economic sense for the business. And they're going to try to push the client out of the facility. And then he was like, oh, no, that'll never happen, blah, blah, blah. Sure enough, that's exactly what happened. Three years later, there's a new CEO, there's a new CRO, and we literally had to forward the email chain that we had with the former CEO explaining this very dynamic, saying, look, this is not going to be good for your business long term, but you've already presented the pricing. And so on our side as a consultant, not only are we looking out for, you know, at the end of the day, we're looking out for the client because we don't want the client who's now put the production workloads in the facility three years later to be having a service provider that doesn't want them as a tenant anymore and trying to find creative ways to kick them out because of the pricing that they were able to negotiate for. Yeah, no, we see it all the time. But, you know, I do also understand the pressure that these guys are under, right? They've taken a lot of money made a lot of promises to private equity guys and they need to deliver revenue and new logos, right? So, um, you know, when we looked at, you know, what were sort of our levers that we needed to perform on, it was new logos, it was incremental revenue, right? And then, you know, towards the end, it gets, it gets more toward, you know, EBITDA. Um, and that usually comes from, you know, reducing costs and reducing, you know, headcount, right? To get your, your EBITDA or making acquisitions um, and taking the revenue and putting it onto your platform. So um, I get it. I mean, it's, uh, I know why, why they do it. Uh, you know, it's just, it's sort of the nature of the beast right now. And, and again, in most markets, it's a great buyer's market. So now that you're a client advocate, you know, 100% and no longer, you know, looking only solely out for the best interest of the, the provider that you're working for, um, I'm curious what your take is on on uh, another related topic, and that is all the private equity money that's coming into the industry, and how that affects uh, the operations of a business. And specifically, what I'm referring to is a lot of the the new money that's coming in is pushing sales pretty heavily. You know, marketing and sales becomes a, a big priority. Um, with the hope that there's some kind of disposition plan down the road for the business, you know, three, five, seven years, they're going to go public, they're going to be acquired, merge, whatever, whatever it might be. Um, and what happens in that merger is a lot of turmoil. There's a lot of turnover that occurs, facilities managers, sales engineers, account managers, the people who are responsible for the day-to-day management of a client account business get turned over. Um, and for me, being a client advocate, you know, one of the many variables I'm looking at is that dynamic. Because if you're going to be putting your long-term production workloads into a facility that you know is going to be sold in the next 12, 24 months, simply because of the the ownership uh, dynamics of the business, that could detrimentally affect that client 
relationship and client, um, the, the client workloads that are sitting inside that facility. Um, you know, we saw this happen with a handful of data center companies that were acquired by the telecommunication companies, the, the CenturyLinks and Zeo and a handful of, um, you know, uh, Windstream um, made some acquisitions and then systematically turned these production grade data centers into telco switching facilities from a management perspective and went about pissing off basically a lot of the clients that were in those buildings. Um, is that, you know, how, how are you viewing that reality now that you're on the other side of the house? I think, I don't know if I was going to say this, the carrier that's done the best job is Zendaya, right? With, with those data center assets, everyone else destroyed the businesses that they acquired and then subsequently sold them. Um, so, you know, obviously, you know, they have done a very good job. They've kept them all under their umbrella. They haven't peeled them off yet. They continue to grow the business and it's not really just their acquisition anymore. They're doing organic expansions inside a market. So, um, I can say, you know, that they are one of the few, um, network providers that have embraced the data center business and, and grown it. So, um, everyone else, you know, from a network provider who's bought data center assets has shed them. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with number one, their inability to grow the business the way they thought they were going to be able to grow it. And number two, they can go out to the market. They could sell it for more than they paid for it. Right. So, um, you know, I think when we look at opportunities for customers, there's, there's good and bad about being acquired. Right. The bad is, um, you know, you don't know, really know what you're getting yourself into for the most point. Right. But the good is also sort of the same way. If I got purchased, if my, customer's data center, their provider gets purchased, right? Maybe now I have access to a, a much bigger platform, right? Where I don't have to go out and recontract if I'm moving to Asia. I don't have to recontract if I'm moving to Europe um, because I've got, I'm now on a global footprint, right? Um, I'm going to have, at least in the long term, I'm going to have similar standards. I'm going to have similar, similar processes and I have one vendor to manage, right? So there's, there's the good and the bad on both sides. Um, you know, really, but from, You'll see the growing pains post acquisition until everything sort of shakes out, and that's just sort of um, you know something that you're not going to be able to get over. There's nobody out there right now who's untouchable or unacquirable, say except for any of the major public reach. Right? I don't see anyone coming in and making a big play from those guys. I think just the barrier to entry on those guys is too big. Um, everyone else in the market is fair game. Um, you see, your hope is that they get purchased by private equity um, and the management team stays in place. And subsequently means everyone else stays in place. You'll start to see shakeup from an operational perspective when they uh, get purchased by a strategic, right? Because they're, they're going to have their own team there, their own processes, and things are going to change, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. Um, so, you know, customers, you know, and we've had to come up with, how do I know that these guys aren't going to be acquired? You don't. I'm like, but your other option is to go pay twice as much over there, right? And you don't know that after the if these guys if these guys get acquired, whether it's going to be good or bad. I'm like, so that's why we do a two year term instead of a five year term, or a three year term, or even a one year term to give yourself that same flexibility. So you know, should you have to leave because somebody really bad, right? And for the most part, there's no one really bad out there. It's most of it's perception. The majority of these providers do a very good job delivering product to their customer, right? Does the customer service sort of suck sometimes? Yeah. Does the billing suck sometimes? Yeah. 
but most of the times they're just bitching about price. Uh, so, you know, that, a lot of that work comes up front by, you know, setting your customer up and setting their expectations. It's like, it's like anything else. Set the correct expectations. Um, and then when things do happen, um, at least you are able to plan for them. Yeah. It's the same thing with, with an outage, right? Shit's going to break. It always breaks. Um, but it's how fast does somebody respond when things do break and how well do they communicate? So, um, you know, I sort of take the same precedence when we're putting people into data centers that, you know, we may have an inkling may or may not be acquired. It may not always be bad. It may be good. Um, but prepare them for it and make the right decisions on the front end to say, hey, let's adjust our term or let's ask for this concession, um, you know, to get you more comfortable with it. And for the most part, like we've talked about, these providers are so hungry for these. They're going to, at the end of the day, give you what you want as long as it's a rational ask. And that's, you know, part of our job, right, is to make sure that we're giving rational ask to to the provider and not something that's totally out of left field that, you know, can't be accomplished or something that they would never do. Our job is to temper the customer and make sure that everyone gets a good deal. I don't want to put a cut. And we're in a deal right now. It's a resale of, of a large REIT. Um, by another data center company, right? So the underlying provider is a large REIT. Um, you know, we're trying to go out and get market pricing. And we said to these guys, we don't want to put you in a bad financial position. It may be better for us to go direct with these guys. We don't want you to do a bad financial deal. Um, we're going to be with you in sort of your, your native, your own site in another city. But, you know, this may not be the best deal for us going forward. And it may not be the best deal from you going forward. From an economic perspective, and I think you know that's part of our job is to sort of lay it out because some of these providers are, are blind sometimes and you know just want the revenue. Um, in this example, they weren't, and they agreed that you know it may be a better move for us to go directly with with the REIT. So um, you know, that, that was a long-winded answer, I, I think, to your question, but hopefully I covered it. No, you make a lot of very good points, um, and it's it's good to keep the the whole perspective. I tend to be a uh, pessimist. <laughs> I, I, I don't want to say I don't know if pessimist is the right word. Um, I like to think of it as a realist, but um, I'm always looking for what what's the angle, what's the gotcha, where's the big risk involved. Um, but you make a lot of good points, like with Zao, for example. I would say it took them about two three years to fully realize. Um, that they can't operate a lot of these data centers like switching facilities. And they have been making significant uh, um, investments into the Z Colo line of their business and the cloud side of their business as well. So, you know, for example, um, whereas most of the telecommunication providers have part of their portfolio, their co-location business and managed services business is like something like two to 4% of their total revenue and their top line um revenue which if you just look at where you know where they're getting the biggest return for their dollar it's it's on the network side of their business and so it makes sense that they're going to invest more money into the the physical fiber and the network part of their business um but zeo has been uh actually doubling down and tripling down over the last two years on their data center and cloud side of the business um, so it's encouraging to see that because when when they're making investments instead of pulling resources, um, it does lean towards and and uh, lead towards the fact that they're uh, going to keep that part of the business around and make it part of their their key strategy moving forward. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think you know TJ and Andy and the team there have done 
an excellent job. You know, they know the business, they know how to get deals done. They know the types of facilities that customers want to buy in, um, in the markets that they're in. So, you know, I can't say enough good things about, you know, the direction that I've seen the Z Polo business go when you're right, you know, three or four years ago, it was, it wasn't that same direction. So, um, you know, kudos to those guys and, and that team for really turning the ship, um, and taking the assets that they've acquired and really, uh, you know, extracting the value out of them and, you know, seeing how can they replicate that across different markets. And you're seeing those investments as they continue to organically grow now instead of just pure acquisition. All right. So we've covered a lot of ground on this call. I think we've gone in so many different tangents. Um, but for those who are still with us, uh, I've got a couple more questions for you. Uh, kind of my rapid fire last round of questions here. But what would you say one of the, you know, what's something you've learned in the last couple of months that you think has just absolutely blown your mind, something that was unexpected and um, kind of changed your paradigm? I think it's blown my mind. It's, just, it's got a whole nother level of uh, importance to me now, right? Because I'm running my, my own organization that deals take longer to get done, deals take longer to bill, and deals take longer for customers to pay. <laughs> um, you know, that's, you know, stuff that I need to actually worry about now. You know, it was one thing to say that, hey, you know, it's from, you know, from quote to cash is one thing, right? But when you're running your own organization, quote to cash is super important. Um, so I think that's sort of been, you know, the biggest thing is that the value that I need to put on my time and, um, you know, just the value that, uh, you know, your customer relationships have and putting them in inside of the right provider because, the guys that I'm doing business with now are people that I've done business with 15 or 20 years ago. Often. So to keep those relationships going, you need know, to make sure that you make the right decisions. And, you know, just to do my homework when we're looking at providers, you got to do, do more due diligence because we're branching out and getting into different segments of the business like UCAS and cloud, um, you know, some connectivity and still the core is data center, some security work. You know, you really got to do your due diligence when you're you know, searching for providers and vendors to recommend to customers. So that's, I'd probably say that, you know, the two or three biggest things that I've seen. Yeah. To that point, I think that's something that most people who jump into our arena now here on the agnostic consultant side overlook is the time to cash. And, you know, speaking for myself, I didn't have a, a book of business that I built on the side that I was able to step over into when I was working in the industry. Um, so I had to start literally from scratch and some of the biggest deals I did early on, you know, I did a 400 KW deal. I did a half a megawatt deal. Um, and I did some other very sizable deals, but I did my job extremely well in such that I had like six to 12 month ramps for my customers. Uh, and, or, you know, they didn't start paying, they may have signed a five-year term contract, but they didn't start paying until nine, 12 months into the contract, which means I didn't see any money for close to 16 to 24 months after the deal got, got inked. Um, so it takes, you know, three, six, nine months to get a deal done, if not longer. And then you don't see money for another 12 to 24 months for some of the big deals. Uh, that's painful. <laughs> and you got to think through how yeah. you're going to float yourself between point A and point B. Yep. I've, I've got a very understanding wife who also has insurance for a family. So that's, that's the bonus. Yeah, that's, that's, that's key. Um, so where, where do you see one of the other questions I have for is where do you think this market's going to evolve? Right? So the last couple of years we've seen 
these cloud exchanges becoming key. Obviously, cloud is going to continue to be key, but is there anything unique that's going to come into or that you see coming into the arena that's going to maybe change the game or or add a new flavor to the game? Um, I think the biggest thing we're seeing in the market right now is, you know, sort of these, um, these cloud readiness companies, you know, really coming into play. Um, you know, people like Second Watch, um, you know, who are going into customers' environments and saying, hey, how do I get you out of your data center? How do I get you into the cloud? Um, I think those companies will continue to flourish over the next two to three years. You know, whether they're going to a hyperscale provider or they're going to, you know, a multi-tenant or a private cloud environment, I think customers are struggling with how do I get to this thing that people call cloud, right? Um, you know, is it really just everything software as a service or, you know, do I need to run my own virtual infrastructure still? Um, I think that's probably the biggest, uh, you know, trend that we'll see is that these sort of middle consulting companies that come in and try to take you from virtualized environment on your on-prem to cloud, whatever flavor of cloud that may be. Um, I think those guys are really going to be, you know, pushing the envelope of customers and, and helping providers grow. And I think, you know, these vendors need to look at, um, at those people as a really good lead source for them um, and, you know, try to give them as much knowledge about their environment as possible. So when they're going in and constructing these, these, uh, these environments and these workloads, you know, they can construct them to work on their platforms. Yeah, that's, that's definitely, I mean, that's happening more and more every day. So for those who are not aware of that reality, uh, they need to become aware of that reality. And that kind of leads to the training that I'm doing these days with within Microcorp and all the agents at Microcorp is getting these guys to understand that they need to start solving a holistic problem, not just a, a network problem um, or a UCAS problem or a contact center problem. There's much bigger issues going on within their clients that they can be addressing. Um, so the last question I have for you, actually second to last question I have for you is what was, if you look back when you were starting at AT&T, what was, the most influential piece of advice that you were given back then that kind of helped oh, shape your career? Man, I, I was an even bigger asshole back then than I am now. Um, <laughs> there was a guy named Curtis Minnis, um, who was one of my bosses at AT&T. And I went on some tirade to some woman in a call center about, you know, we need to help the customer and you're not doing anything for us. He's like, Rob, what are you doing? He's like, more bees with honey. I was like, huh. It's like, you know, you really need to appreciate more the people who can help you get things done in an organization. Um, and he's like, you need to value those people um, more. It's not always about going out and selling and getting things done right away. He's like, you'll get more sales and you'll get more things done internally by having the people who control those things be on your side and be part of your team as opposed to thinking that they work for you or they work for the customer. Um, you know, the outcomes will come if you are essentially just, just nicer to those people, appreciate what they do. Um, so, you know, that's probably the, the biggest piece of advice that I got, you know, when, when I was younger is, you know, you've got to treat everybody from the receptionist to the CEO with the same amount of respect. Um, and sometimes you need to treat the people who aren't the CEO um, you know, with, with kid gloves and make sure that, you know, they feel appreciated because what they do for the most part sucks. Um, and, 
you know, they get yelled at on a daily basis. So if they get a nice person on the phone who talks to them and asks them how their day is going and generally cares, um, your stuff's going to go to the front of the pile anyway. And even if it doesn't, um, you know, you still need to make that person feel, feel valued inside of the organization. That's great advice. And I, I hope those who are listening who are new will take that to heart and heed that. I know I have to remind myself probably like you to, to keep that in mind every day um, when I'm talking to uh, some of the folks I have to talk to in the industry, especially these, you know, the more business I do on the network side of the house, it's just mind boggling how these companies stay in business. These major, major carriers were, as I talked to these agents who do business with them, there's not one of them that's like, oh, I love doing business with AT&T or I love doing business with CenturyLink. Um, they've always got install timeline issues and, and install problems. And, oh, we know we sold you this, but it turns out we can't even offer you this um, type of issues and problems. But um, We had a, uh, a woman when, when I was running the Viacom account, um, I was on the phone with the president of Paramount Pictures. And she's like, I need a DSL circuit in my house. And I was like, yeah, I'm like, please don't order that for me. And she's like, well, you're AT&T, you sell it, right? I'm like, yes, we absolutely sell it. I said, but, you know, this is going to be a disaster for both of us. She's like, well, what do you mean? I was like, you know, they're going to go and it's going to be either green, orange, or red, right? That's going to be the, you know, either green, we can definitely do it, orange, and we may be able to do it, or red, we can't do it. I'm like, and you're, this is for her house. I'm like, your house is orange. I go, so I'm going to send like four people out there and they're going to, one person's going to tell you yes. The next three are going to tell you no. And you're going to come in and yell at me. I go, and this is for like $69 a month. I'm like, it's really better for you to go get a cable modem. I'm like, the wire's already going into your house. She's like, well, I also don't want anybody to put a hole in my house to put a wire. And I was like, I'm like, lady, I'm like, I, I really, I want to help you here, but uh, this is going to be an we're not going to be friends after this. This is going to affect a lot more business than just your, your DSL line because you're not going to like AT&T after we get through this process. Yes. Um, it's not something that's easy to get done. And she, again, set their expectations. She appreciated it. Did she end up buying, this, buying it anyway? <laughs> we, we did it for her. It wasn't pretty. All right, man. Well, the last question I have for you, which I know you know is coming, but uh, do you love data centers? Sweet baby Jesus. I do love data centers. They've been very good to me over the last 20 years and hopefully will continue to do so. Um, you know, I tell folks, I said, it's one thing to sell things that, that people want. We're selling things that people need or, you know, recommending solutions that people need. People need to be in data centers, whether it's from a cloud perspective or from a physical co-location perspective, you know, it's one of the fastest growing industries out there right now. You know, every time you upgrade your iPhone camera or your iPhone, it goes from eight megapixels to 12. Well, you just had, you know, a 50% increase on all the storage that's going into, you know, iCloud and, you know, Tumblr and Facebook. So um, it's an exciting place to be, you know, right now. It has been for the last 20 years. And I think it's just going get, to get more interesting going forward. So yeah, definitely. I love data centers. Awesome. Well, I'm probably going to pull pull part of that and put it into the new intro that I have coming out for the podcast. But uh, Rob, it. it's, it's been a pleasure, man. You're not only one of the most well-connected and respected people in the industry, but you're also one of the most knowledgeable and most definitely in the, da- in the Dallas marketplace. So for anyone listening who's got anything going on in and around Dallas, you definitely want to look up Rob. And for those who, are, who are, want to get a hold of you, how can they find you? 
um, at our, our brand new website, uh, Magetics. So Magetics is Met Jet Knicks. It's my three favorite sports teams uh, from New York. So it's M E J E T I C K S dot com. I thought it was like I thought that was like Spanish for something or or Swahili for something. You're telling me that Met uh, it's literally just your three favorite sports teams. Yep, Mets, Jets, Knicks. That's it. And I'll I'll tell you a story offline how my friends freaked me out when they lied to me and told me that they looked it up on Urban Dictionary and that they thought it meant something different. <laughs> I'm sure they did. <laughs> All right, man. We'll talk soon. Appreciate it. All right, guys. Peace. Thanks. Bye. So there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And before I sign off, I really need you to know that we really do love data centers over here at Open Spectrum. It's not just a, a catchy tagline for a podcast. They are our passion and our livelihood. And I encourage you to learn more about how we serve buyers, service providers, agents, master agents, and investors in the data center hosting network and cloud services space. Uh, you can check out our website at www.openspectruminc.com where you can download a mountain of free content that we produce, such as the numerous regional market reports and excerpts from our book, the Data Center Collocation Industry Playbook, that is now on its fourth edition. And I think at this point, we've sold close to over 1,200 copies of the book. You can also read the show notes and links from this podcast at www.openspectruminc.com forward slash I love data centers. Have a great week and I will see you and hopefully hear from you soon.